1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. show I even faded out. That
2: was even faded out. (laughs) I faded out on that one. Oh my goodness, it just gets better and better each week.
1: Every week it gets better.
2: You don't practice at home, do you, a little bit?
1: Yeah. (laughs) My kids love it. They love it.
2: It's great. Thank you, Mark. So last week,
1: on a scale of 1 to 10, you were at like 15. Really? I, I, I think we're there again.
2: Wow, yeah. This yeah. is
1: an interesting one we got going on tonight.
2: We sure do. I we, think you're
1: pretty excited.
2: So. I am so excited. I, and I know it sounds like every week, you know, I'm so excited, but, but but we do have incredible guests. We really do. Very
1: impressive and guests. And
2: I'm so honored that they are willing to share their time. Yeah. It's a huge gift, you know, when somebody gives you that gift of time. Yes. You know, it's amazing. But this week. Who do we have? We have the Tony Award winning. Wow. Broadway producer Ken Davenport awesome. Awesome. of Davenport Theatrical Enterprise in New York. Yep. I don't know how many folks out there listening may have gone to New York to see Broadway shows. Kinky Boots is his show. Once Upon an Island is his show. And he's got other shows yeah. that are coming up and that are just amazing. So he's going to be coming on a little later on in the yep. show. He's calling in from New York. He's got some stuff going on. So It's a busy when- guy. <laughs> whenever he can call. Right. It's going to be great. It's so really ladies great. and gentlemen, if you
1: uh if you had ever dreamed of producing your own Broadway show, this is this is the show to be listening to.
2: This is the show cuz I think Ken will tell us about his experience yeah. and how he got into it. Yeah. But you were also really fascinated as you looked at his website,
1: right? Amazing. I'm I'm excited to talk to him about his entrepreneurship. I mean, there's a lot. I am not a huge Broadway fan, but not no reason, just but, other than it's not part of my my DNA. <laughs> I'm getting see, the thumbs down for Ben. Sorry, but, but ben. you see,
2: but that's what's wonderful about you and I being co-hosts, right? You know, because we, we bring such different Ying perspectives to the world. Yes,
1: <laughs> very much so. I
2: love Broadway.
1: I can imagine, and uh, so I d- I dug in, went online to figure out who he was and what he what he did, and I was really impressed. I'm excited to talk to him about that part of it, the business piece of it. But I have a question for you. Yes. Have you ever dreamed of producing a Broadway musical?
2: I have, Mark. I must admit. Uh, well, let's let's I, t- until Ken gets here. Let's uh, let's talk about that. Okay, but remember, Ken may listen to the show, so I don't want it Which to is think fine. that I'm, you know, like. Pitching it, pitching my show. And no, well, right, I get you. I'm not, Ken. I'm, I'm really, I'm not. I, no, well, maybe, maybe. but I am. Well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. But uh, I, you know, I, I've done a lot of theater in my time.
1: yeah. Starting um, with Zoom.
2: Starting with Zoom. Starting even a little before Zoom with right. Oliver and Zoom. Yeah. And then um, you know, I had my equity card. You know, actors' equity, all that sort of stuff. But. But I also love writing. And, you know, if folks, listen to the opening of the Dr. Joe show. That's my daughter, Sophie, singing one of the songs that I wrote called cool Bango. Right. But the show that I've been working on, it's ready. It is ready. It's ready. We've oh, had, so let's talk about it. We've then. had readings. Our first reading was at Company Theater. And I hope Company Theater actually may be coming on the air with us sometime, uh, I think, the end of March. Okay. They're 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 in their thirtieth year. Wow, incredible. Yeah, and then we had readings in New York. We've had readings in Boston. We're back bringing it up again because I got distracted. I got distracted. I wrote these four self help psychology books in four years, and now I was
1: going to say life gets in the way, but four it books does. in four years is not normal. Yeah, just thanks. just so we're clear on that. So let's let's go back okay. in time a All little right. bit. All right. So we're talking about the, it's you're having these readings. You right. have a score okay. of music. What right. When did when did the writing begin okay.
2: so, and why? So what happened was Carol and I, my wife Carol, we had just had our third child. Now the first okay. two kids, I hope Carol doesn't mind me you know, revealing some of this stuff, but the first two kids were cesarean section yeah. and then we waited a few years and then the next kid was not cesarean. And Carol and I was a few months later and I started to think, you know, it's really pretty amazing because 50 years, 100 years ago, this would not have been possible. Right. Carol would have died in childbirth. More so likely to play I, about it. I remembered <laughs> <laughs> I remembered a footnote in medical school when I was doing my OB gyn rotation and I remembered a footnote about this guy called Semmelweis. Yeah. And Semmelweis had done something, I couldn't remember what it was at the time, something to to help women who were giving birth in childbirth. So at the time I was the medical director of the outpatient programs at McLean Hospital, and I'd made friends with the archivist, and I said to him, do you know, have you heard of this guy Semmelweis? Can you find out anything from me about him? And this guy produced, a week or two later, the original translated manuscripts. Wow. Because Semmelweis was a Hungarian obstetrician practicing in Vienna, Austria in 1847. Wow. And it took him a long time to write this book. Yeah. But this is what was going on. So I started for two years. I read everything I could about this guy. I read everything I could about about the history of Austria, of Hungary, what was happening back then. What was so, it? So here's what was going on. Semmelweis was working in the Algeminis Krankenhaus Lying-In Hospital of Vienna. This was where people came to give birth. It was one of the great teaching hospitals in Austria. And he was confronted with the dilemma. On his obstetric ward, the women would come in and give birth, and about 20% of them would die within a couple of days of something that was called childbed fever. Okay, Childbed fever, they're giving birth, 20% of them die. Nobody knows why. There were these insane theories, really. Something about miasma in the air or because men were delivering them, they were too modest, all these things. But right down the hallway, literally down the hallway, in a ward that was identical but run by midwives, the women were not dying. Huh. And Semmelweis set his mind to figure out why. What was happening? The women were dying on his ward but not down the hallway.
1: Okay. And this is the basis of a musical. And this is the basis of a musical. <laughs> just in case, we're <laughs> in case you're just tuning in. This That's is right. <laughs> so this is
2: Semmelweis. So what had happened was Semmelweis, you know, these women would die, yeah, and he would then take the dead bodies. And in lecture format, he would then do these dissections and autopsies, yeah. and he would write down everything that he could find about why the women were dying. You know, so he would write down things like septicemia, which is about different infections, and pyemia, yeah. and pleurisy, which is an infection of the lungs, pericarditis, infection of the heart. He'd write all these things down. And then he would go and examine these women in labor on his ward, two out of 10 would die, and he would explore and dissect them. Now this was really interesting because the reason he was allowed to do this dissection was because the church, about 20 or 30 years later, had given a special dispensation that physicians could do these autopsies and the soul of these people would still go to heaven. As long as they had the last rites, the souls would become these empty shells and it was not jeopardizing the women and the men who had died going to heaven. Mm -hmm. Part of the church absolutely disagreed with that and were absolutely against it. The other thing that was going on was that because there was this very rigid Austrian director Director Klein, who was running the hospital and was Semmelweis' boss, Klein had come up with the strategy that if you got to the hospital on a Monday or a Wednesday or a Friday, you, if you got there and you were in labor, you would be admitted to the midwife ward. So you might live. Yeah. Well, you're pretty guaranteed to. Right. There was practically no death rate. But if you got there on a Tuesday or Thursday or over the weekend, you would go to Semmelweis' ward. Yikes. And so this became knowledge among these women in Vienna, and they would do whatever they could to make themselves be in labor so that they would go into the midwife ward, not Semmelweis' ward. So Semmelweis, doing dissection after dissection, he's trying to figure this out, crazy theories. And then a friend of his, this guy Kolechka, who's also a physician, winds up cutting his hand during one of these autopsies. And two days later... Kolechka dies. Ah. And when Semmelweis looks at the autopsy report, it is all the same symptoms of childbed fever. And he realizes, Semmelweis realizes at this moment that the only difference, the only difference between his ward and the midwife ward was that he was doing dissections and the midwives were not allowed to. The midwives weren't even allowed in the dissection chamber. The only difference... And he realized at that moment, his epiphany was that he was the one carrying something from these cadavers Mm -hmm. and introducing it to these women in labor.
1: So So, in an an attempt to solve the problem, he was creating a much bigger problem.
2: That's right. And so in in the musical, he has this line, in my fever to discover, I have killed so countless mothers. Uh, So Mark... What a wonderful musical. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what do you think his discovery was? That you must wash your hands. That's right. After
1: you dissect somebody, just wash your hands before (laughs) you deliver a baby.
2: Ben is just showing us a bottle of Purell. That's right. (laughs) That's right. And so that's how Act One ends. Act One ends with Semmelweis making this discovery and realizing, though, that he has been the one contributing to the death of these women. That's how act one ends. So the audience leaves going, okay, we know he's right. Never heard of him. Yeah. Why is there an act two? And that's when it gets really interesting because no one believed him. Uh, no one no believed one, him that you should wash your hands. Uh, no. No one believed him. He, he began washing his hands. He had all the nurses on his ward wash their hands. The death rate went below that on the midwife ward. Huh, And,
1: and they still didn't believe they him.
2: They did not believe him. Because he was Hungarian. Oh, wow. And these were Austrians. That's right. And that, that he dispelled, you know, dismissed all these theories. He'd made all these enemies. So yeah. they drove him out of Vienna back to Hungary. Back to where you come from. Back to where he come from. And so But he kept but he kept washing his hands, he kept doing it, he kept making his discovery, and then he gets lured back to Vienna and I don't know whether I should tell you how the musical ends. Maybe you should just come no, and see it. In Broadway. On Broadway.
1: At Broadway. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But you guys have heard of Lister, right? So this is what this is what really gets me and gets a lot of other people, especially my wife Carol, that Lister is the one getting the credit. For aseptic technique, for, for realizing that you had to wash your hands. There was just a book about him recently. It was all over NPR about Lister. Great physician. He was an incredible physician, but he didn't give any credit to Semmelweis. Semmelweis was 20, 30 years before him. And he gave him zero credit? No, no credit. And this, remember. Because he was Hungarian. Maybe, or because who knows <laughs> why? He knew of his work. Knew of his work, and I'm not putting Lister down or yeah. any of the Listerine family or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. The, the reality is, though, that sometimes you know the truth and no one believes you. Right, And that's really part of what this show is about. How often have you had that experience in your life where you've known something was true? But it went against the herd. And no one believed you. Yeah. Let me, um, Ben, can you just run one of the songs from Ken's new Broadway show so folks go ahead start playing so we're gonna listen to a little bit of this and then hopefully we'll bring Ken in Ken Davenport get the
3: band back (laughs) ridiculous (laughs) a bunch of 40 something dreamers past the prime of that rock star track I quickly left behind cause dreams don't matter When the rent is coming due You play it safe And let the fantasy slip through But sometimes I close my eyes And I find myself back in yesterday Stocks and bonds and bonded years the same day reloaded In hindsight crystal clear I watched the Dow climb And I felt it ricochet I played it safe Only to watch it slip away But sometimes I close my eyes And I find myself surprise that teenage dreams are flooding in but open up my eyes and let reality set the stage and then remind me again I'll never be one of those guys from Asbury Park One of those guys who chases his star No building schemes, awful dreams that I forgot Just let the past hurry past like second thoughts As I swallow the compromise Cause I'm not one
1: of those guys Wow, that was fun. That's great. That was a fun song.
2: Ken Davenport, do we have you on the line? You do. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, Ken, thanks so much. That is such an incredible song. Ken, welcome. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks so much for being on the air with us. So, my pleasure. So, where do we start with somebody as accomplished as you, Mr. Davenport? What, what do you want to tell us? I mean, how did you build this enterprise? Build this musical? I mean, we are at your at your beck and call. Whatever you want to talk about, can. Let's hear it. <laughs> Well, let's talk about
0: politics. No, no, no. <laughs> not do that. Oh, that's no, that. no. I that's really just a shot, shot in the dark. That. No, that was really yeah, bad. Exactly. Uh, so, look, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I consider myself one of the luckiest people on earth because I, uh, my hobby is my profession. Mm. I've loved the theater since I was a little uh, math hole, actually, like <laughs> all you guys. I mean, it, was, it was great. Uh, I was on hold there, listening to some ads and hearing that Massachusetts accent. I was like, "Ah, oh, man, I love it!" You can go back and go party on the weekend, get cocked. It'll be awesome. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, since I was a little kid, I've always wanted to to be involved with the theater. My mom tells me that I first kicked when she was watching a production of Godspell. So it was always it was always in me, if you will. Uh, I actually. Did theater until I was about 12 years old, got too cool for it, thought I was going to play for the Boston Red Sox and the Celtics simultaneously, like mm-hmm. I was going to be that kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then got re-bit by the bug my senior year of high school when I saw Les Mis. Yeah. Um, was going to be a lawyer because I went to this college prep school in Central Mass, if that's what they did, churned out doctors and lawyers. <laughs> but um, I decided after my freshman year of college at Johns Hopkins to just go after this theater thing that I just loved and transferred to NYU and it has been It's just been a joy ever since. I worked my, my way up from the bottom. I was a production assistant on a Broadway show back in 19-something. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, getting Richard Chamberlain, the star of the show, his fresh-roasted turkey sandwiches that had to be cut off the bone and, and doing all those gopher things and loving every second of it. Uh, and um, I just slowly worked myself up. From, from the bottom there, working as a stage manager, an agent, you know, everything, until I started producing shows about 10 years ago, and I'm still doing it now.
1: So, Ken, this is Mark. How are you? I'm great. What does a producer do?
0: that's a great question and I actually a uh, 13 year old girl asked me that question about 8 years ago online and I I have a blog and I talk a lot about this stuff and I was like I started to answer I was like dear Lizzie well a producer (laughs) and I was like what the F do I do I don't even really know so I put it to all my peers and actually one of the most popular blogs I've ever written and I think if you just google Broadway producer it'll pop up actually on one of the top searches on Google of like what does a probably producer do? A hundred producers respond. So I put it to all my peers and they gave me and I said in one sentence, what do we do? And they all uh they gave these responses. So Uh, Check that out if you want to see what everyone else thought. What I thought was very simply, uh, I said this to um, a a group of folks tonight. We had a a networking event for my blog, actually. And I say this, a producer's job is to get people in a room. That's what we do. We, we, We come up with an idea for a show, or we love, and we say, oh, I've got an idea. Like, my very first show is called The Awesome 80s Prom. Yep. an interactive show um, set at a high school prom in 1989 and I had that idea and I got a bunch of actors in a room and I said, what do you think? Prom, 80s, improv and we just, mm. energy was created and eventually we just kept getting in a room and we created a show with Once in on this Island which is on Broadway right now my latest Broadway show the director of Spring Awakening Michael Arden who had my uh, produce Spring Awakening The Revival and I said, what do you want to do next? and he said, Once in on this Island and I said, great And I called the authors of Once in the Silent. I called Michael. I got him in a conference room and I said, let's talk about what that would be. Uh, So that's really what it's about. It's about making the first move, if you will. Um, I consider myself, I sometimes say to a lot of my consulting clients and things, like, your job is to serve the tennis ball, start the game, right? Get things going in some way. That's what entrepreneurs do. That's what producers
1: right. do. And you are quite the entrepreneur. I could see that online. I saw a lot of interesting content that you had out there. And what one thing that amazed me is it seemed as though it all kind of funneled back to the same big game, which is putting putting people in those seats. And what you're doing is it, it's almost, I hate to uh, tarnish what you're doing, but it's almost kind of an American Idol type of model where you're, you're bringing them in, you're teaching them how to do it, and hopefully... Somebody hits, right? But so
0: look, my, my mission is this. Okay. I love the theater so much. I think the, theater, the world is a better place with more theater in it. I think it's just that we can be entertained by it, and frankly, we can learn by it. There's a great quote, um, and I'm going to paraphrase it right now, but it, it basically says that art can change a lot more minds than politicians can actually right we, we go sense. to art we learn and we we learn incredible lessons but we they don't feel like lessons because they're told through stories uh you know i often i'm a producer on kinky boots that big hit and i go to see the show and i look at the audience which now is like you know groups of tourists guys from like nebraska mm-hmm. and i always think like oh if, if i went up to these guys from nebraska last week and said hey Next week, you're going to see Kinky Boots on Broadway, and you're going to be on your feet cheering for a bunch of drag queens. <laughs> I think they'd all be like, "You're crazy! Yeah. There's no way that would happen." But that's what great art does. So, my mission statement is uh, to get to amplify the conversation about theater. More people talk about it, more people do it, right? So, everything that I do is just try to get more of it in the world, including, yeah, my blog, my website. I, you know, I remember what it was like to be this young kid that just wanted to put theater out there in the world and I sat at home all alone in front of my computer wondering how to do it and I vowed that one day when I achieve some level of success that I would help instruct other people to be able to do the same thing to put what they love out in the world
2: that's awesome yeah you know it, it, it's so wonderful to, to hear you talk this way Ken I, one of the things that that I teach my kids or try to get my kids to believe is you know love going to work and love going home mm. If you if you can do that, then you're a success. It doesn't feel like work; it just feels like something you love to do. And I'm certainly hearing that as you're speaking. You know?
0: Yeah. Listen, that's exactly it. I am actually at the office right now, but it doesn't feel like the office. I come here all the time. I mean, this is where it's a hobby. Like I said, it's not a profession. And someone once called me like a buddy was like, "You're such a workaholic," and I was like, "No, I'm not." I'm a love of <laughs> That's I, great. I love it. I mean, it's great. I wouldn't find myself, you know, I, I, I was going to be a lawyer, and I'm very glad I didn't do that because uh, I don't think I would be enjoying it. Like you said, I think that's a great way I love, love what you do and love going home.
2: Who are we going to just ask you, Mark? I'm
1: dying to know what the day in the life of a Broadway producer is like. I mean, long days, long nights, but you're loving it. So, how does it go? What's the routine? What's the morning routine, the rituals and where do you go from oh, there? Oh,
0: sure. I will tell you that I first of all the cool thing about the job is that no two days are right. alike. You know, every every show is different. Every time I open a show and I'm like, ah, or decide to produce a show, I'm like, ah, I've produced shows before. This won't be the same. And <laughs> they're never the same. They're always different. There's always a challenge. But so that's what makes it fun. You never know. Like your phone rings and an agent's like, Hey, and this has happened to me like when I produced Macbeth, the Alan Cumming one man Macbeth on Broadway, mm-hmm. that that morning I didn't know I was gonna produce it. And that afternoon an agent calls me and says, Alan Cumming has a one man Macbeth, would you be interested in producing it? And then the next six months, rest of my life really has changed. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff happens. But very specifically, I do have a uh, a routine. I get up about I'm I'm an early riser. I believe that the morning is a is a is a wonderful opportunity to get ahead. So I get up between five and five thirty. I'm a I'm a big golfer. It's my gym. So I go to the the indoor driving range. This indoor golf club I'm a member of. I hit balls for an hour, uh, and then I. Uh, Get ready for work. I come to work and I'm at my desk uh, about 7:30 or 8, and spend a lot of time. I write during that hour actually because I'm a writer as well. So that's um, the first hour, uh, and then I start to just get ahead of the ahead of the game. I also have a bit of a side gig in that I'm Andrew Lloyd Webber's executive producer for his North American production. So wow. I have to be up early in the morning because for early in the morning here is London. Uh, you know afternoon time right so I'm usually up pretty early to make sure that um, the London main office that they're that they've got everything they need Wow yeah so that's that's pretty much the day and then, and then everything that's... in between it's it's lots of everything from meeting with actors to advertising meetings to meeting with investors you know Broadway producers we have to raise the money for all of our shows yeah uh, so a lot of it is you know drinks with investors and meeting. Potential co-producers and, and all that goes with it you know I, I think producers are like serial startup guys like right. if I do two shows a year, it's like two startup companies
1: and is it are you usually drawing from a lot of the same investors?
0: Yeah, like everything else, you know, you have uh, when you start doing this, you have your early investors, and then you have a core group of people that will follow you wherever you go, just like a sports team has their big fans and yeah. follow them wherever they go through good times and in bad, right? You always have that that core group. So yes, but you're always growing. You're always adding new people. Some people drift away, um, but you you know so you're there's a constant process of of courting people to get involved
1: and how 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 are those structured how are those investments if you will how are they structured is there a certain return on that investment that these investors desire or expect i should say
0: Well, you're investing in a startup. You're investing in a new company. So it's like investing in a restaurant or investing in, you know, Uncle Joe's hardware store or whatever it is. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, that must be some unique business model. The fact of the matter is, and this is one of the reasons I started my blog, is that the Broadway, I try to demystify what we do here from a business perspective. Uh, Producing a Broadway show is very much like any other business out there. I have a product right? It's just a musical. I have to get the rights of that product from the authors, yeah. right? It's the same thing as like if I wanted to sell coffee cups, I would have to find someone that made the coffee cups in order to sell them. Then I have to, play, I have, to have a place to sell that product, yeah. a store, right? Or online, that's where you would sell a coffee cup. Mine is a theater, then I have to advertise it. I have to have management staff. It's the same thing. It costs us a certain amount of money to open up that store, and then it costs a certain amount of money to run that store per week. And I just have to sell as many tickets to make sure I not only keep that store open, but also pay back that original investment. So it's just like anything else.
1: Right. So how do you compete with all the other shows? I mean, now you, I looked online, it seems like you're kind of the. Uh, the first in market with the whole social media impact of the theater has that been uh, yeah. successful for you?
0: It, you know, I'm I'm one of the younger lead yeah. producers out there, so it's not not. Uh You know, it's not a surprise that I adopted technology pretty early on in my career. I also was a pretty geeky kid. I mean, I was a kid that, you know, my uh, brother and I were dropped off at the mall and he would go to the KB Toy and Hobby and I would go to the Radio Shack and like sit in front of a TRS-80 terminal and like make little (laughs) programs on it. So I was always a computer kid. and. So I adopted that in everything I do from an advertising perspective. And I'm always trying to do new and unique things. I mean, we we have a very cluttered, old-school marketing world here on Broadway. Yeah. So I try to do different things, including, like, I had a production of Daddy Long Legs, this beautiful little musical from a couple of years ago. We were the first show to live stream it for free online.
4: Oh, cool.
2: So,
0: yeah, we do things like that to, to keep to keep us current and to attract new audiences.
2: It's just such an exciting world that you live in. Do you think, I mean, because you've been doing this a while, do you think that, that theater and Broadway has evolved? I, I was wondering whether, whether 9-11 changed maybe some of some of the shows that people were wanting to see on Broadway. Do you think there's been an influence? Uh,
0: certainly. I mean, two two things happened after the result of 9-11 uh, from a business perspective on Broadway is that people stopped buying tickets months out in advance, right? They, the, the window for purchasing became much shorter. Hmm. It just stopped planning. We're getting better at that now because we've had such big hits, and now we are obviously you know, 17 years away almost from that, from that horrible day. So that's starting to, to wane, but that was the biggest impact we saw right away is that people stopped planning a year, a year in a- advance. For their vacations. And we're an audience, you know, our audience is comprised of 61% tourists here. So you can imagine an industry that uh, depends on tourists, and all of a sudden there's a major event like that in this city and tourists stop coming, eh, we're going to be in big trouble.
4: Right.
0: The second thing that happened right after that, you know, Mamma Mia opened within that period. And, uh, you know, people rushed to shows that made them feel good and made them forget, uh, which actually is why the musical was created. I mean, musicals were created to be diversionary forms of entertainment. Uh, People just wanted to have a good time. So that was something that happened at that time as well. Now it's, um, you know, we're entering a little bit that period because of everything that's going on actually in the political world. Um, it's one of the reasons we're very excited about getting the band back together because it's such a super fun show. We, we believe audiences just really want to have a good time. Okay, so
2: let's, let's spend a little time talking about that. That was an incredible song. So tell us a bit about this new Broadway show that you're bringing up. So it's a really interesting one to talk about
0: how it was developed, because it's totally, totally original, not based on a movie, not based on a book, based on an idea that came out of my head. A 40-year-old guy loses his job as an investment banker, has to move back in with his mom in New Jersey. On his first day back home, he runs into his best friend who he hasn't seen in 20 years, and that friend says, Dude, you're back in town. You know what we should do? We should put the band back together. <laughs> Group of 40 year old guys that reassemble their high school garage band and challenge their arch nemesis from high school to a rematch or the Battle of the Bay. I love it. So that idea was something I came up with a bunch of years ago. And rather than write it myself or hire another writer to do it, I just it just felt funny. It felt I was a big fan of the improv world. I had developed some previous shows through improv. So I got thirteen actors or the funniest actors and writers in a room and we improvised it to life. I said, You're the best friend, you're the lead, you're the ex girlfriend from high school, go. Hmm. I jotted all this stuff down, and over a period of time, we developed this musical all based on the individual wow. contributions from these actors.
2: Uh, that's getting the people in the room, just what a producer does.
0: Exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's all about those people, and I was very blessed to have these really funny, really creative people. And now, that, that, from that little studio and those 13 people just talking about uh, what it would be like to get your band back together, we have a Broadway musical opening this July.
2: Oh, wow, that's exciting. That's incredible. But, but surely there, there must be more to it than that. You get a group of people in the room, you begin improvising, you begin scripting. It doesn't just go right to Broadway.
0: No, it's, it's actually that was you know, like almost eight years ago, nine years ago when I came, first came up with that idea. There's, huh. It's a lot of time and effort and we came up with a script and then we had to bring in a composer and we would say to that composer, here's where I think a song would go about this, mm. right? Uh, and then that would be written. Uh, and then we would say, "No, that doesn't work. Try something else." And then in 2013, we went to the George Street Playhouse in New Jersey and had a tryout production. Hmm. Right? Learn a lot there. Show was a big hit. Got great reviews. Fantastic. But hey, maybe we want to try something different. So we're constantly shaping, uh, and that eventually leads to
2: today. That's great. One of the things that that we talk about here. Uh, on the Doctor Joe show is this thing that I've created called the I am approach. The idea that people are always doing the best they can. And two of the maxims that come out of it fit so beautifully with everything you've been saying. One of the things is small changes have big effects. And I'm just thinking about the way you say, you know, you're there in the morning, you get a phone call about a one man show of Macbeth, and it's a small change that has a big effect for months. And and I think that this is part of what happens for a lot of folks who come in to see a broadway show or any show any theater it's a small change just walking in that door is a small change that can have a big effect and then the second thing that comes out of the i am is you control no one you influence everyone and i also think that that's part of what you're talking about because this is you know when somebody comes in to see a show it's nothing about control but we really hope that we're influencing them, and we really do. We control no one, we influence everyone. Just walking down the street, you're having an influence on people. But coming in to see a Broadway show, it's, I mean, I've, I've seen shows, and I've walked out of there absolutely transformed.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I'm a member, I was at a conference recently, and um, it was an entrepreneurial conference, and I actually just wrote about this uh, on my blog about, these things I took away from this non-theater conference. By the way, it wasn't about theater at all. I often go to conferences that are not about my industry to learn more about what everyone else is doing.
4: See.
0: And we learned, you know, we were being taught every, about everything from Instagram marketing to how Amazon is taking over the planet, like all this <laughs> stuff. And in this in this speech about, hey, here's what you where you should be looking on. Here's re- looking uh, towards what's happening in the future specifics. Uh, the speaker ended with, and don't forget this. We as entrepreneurs have the ability to change people's lives. Yeah. That's what we do. And, you know, many people out there are, may be entrepreneurs or maybe want to be writers or want to be whatever. And other people may be like, well, that's not me. No, 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 it is. Everybody has the ability to make a change to someone's life That's right. by some small action. And you'd be amazed about how saying hello to someone on the street would change someone's life. Or frankly, I, my life was changed by observing something. Last week I watched an elderly man who was on a corner in New York City and he started to step off the sidewalk and he uh, felt a little nervous and there was uh, this is an older jewish gentleman and there was a young african-american boy like standing nearby and the older gentleman looked and said will you help me and that boy instantly just said, of course put his arm out and they walked across the street and i desperately fumbled to try and get a photo of this because i just thought it was such a beautiful moment of hey i need some help will you help me yes, I will help you. That's right. And isn't that how the world should work? And I, as you can tell, that stuck with me. And that little action, that young man saying, of course, I'm going to help you. You need some help. That's what life is about. Change me. So whether it's me producing a Broadway musical and writing something that, yeah, a lot of people are going to be employed and all this stuff and they'll pay taxes and, yeah, that helps, you know, a lot of folks everyone has the ability to change people's lives with a small action every single day.
2: It's so true and and it it really comes down to I think what what do we want as human beings? And I think, you know, having done this psychiatry stuff now for 30 plus years, I think people just want to feel valued by somebody else. That that's what we want. For we sure. want to feel valuable. And I think that in theater, you know, this this window into the human condition so often comes down to that in any show is at some point somebody wonders if they are valued by somebody else and in a play with a happy ending everybody feels good in a play with a not so happy ending you know people do not feel valuable I mean I don't mean to, to be so you know sort of distill it down to something so trite but but I really think that that's part of what happens you
0: know I, I think you're. I think you're right. I think listen. We all want to feel valued because no matter how successful we are, I think everyone walks around just thinking they're a little bit of a fraud.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> like, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. How do I figure this out? You know, I i interview a lot of very very successful people, and the, one of the common things I see is when they were starting out, they're like, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Right. I still don't. I just do things right. I'm a big believer. You just. Find something you love. You keep doing it a little bit at a time, and eventually, it'll catch up with you. Yeah,
2: boy, you you, you certainly captured what I feel almost every day. Uh-huh. I just I think you know that's why. In, in, that's why you know in medicine we call it practice. You know because we're never we never finish practicing. Right. We're still practicing at it. So we we had we had another question for you in the last few minutes here, if it's okay. Go ahead, yeah, as Mark.
1: we uh, speak to this as you as you ready fire aim as they say how do you know if something's good how do you know when it comes across your table that is it just instinct is it just a gut reaction cuz you're the one that's separating yourself from the herd when you say ah, i'm I'm going to promote this this is the one this is the one that's going to do it investors put your money on it how do you know
0: yeah it's you know look i I have to feel something in my gut. First of all, you never know. Right. right? You, you, you never know because no matter how good something is, no matter how artistic it is or commercial or any of those things, until that curtain goes up and the audience chimes in, you just never know if it's going to be a quote-unquote success. Uh-huh. Right, but just because what defines success, critical success, financial success, that, that stuff you know success it, is a very strange word, right often just getting it up is a success, you know even in shows of mine that haven 't worked people 's lives have been changed, they love it, whatever it is, you know there 's a group of people, so you you just have to it has to be something that hit punches you in the stomach and makes you feel like oh i I have to do this. I have to get it out. It, I just feel compelled to do it for whatever reason. Like, this is something I feel I must do. More people need to see this thing. I think they will. their lives will be changed for the better as a result. Uh, and that's really what it is. And then, hopefully, lots and lots and lots of people uh, love it. And, right. yeah, it makes money. And um, the authors make money and then write another play that changes other lives. I mean, it's that that thing. But... If you're waiting around, like, oh, as an entrepreneur in anything, whether you want to be a restaurateur, whether you want to manufacture coffee mugs, like I said, I'm waiting around for the perfect one right. that, oh, you know is a guarantee.
1: You'll never you start. You will never
0: do anything. Right. Never. And you'll just go through life missing out on a lot of joy. The shows of mine, even the things in my life, business-related, and even personally that have not worked out quote-unquote, there's always been good to come from every single one somehow, somewhere.
1: By just going for it and choosing yeah. the path. Of,
0: Relationships that haven't worked, there's been something that's helped that I've learned from, or yeah. a, a, a show that hasn't worked, but I met someone extraordinary that we're doing another show with, or a business that failed, but I learned, oh, but next time I'm going to market this. like, You can always get some nugget out of every mine, it doesn't mean that mine has to be super successful in order for you to learn from it.
2: But but that is a a really terrific framework because there are so many people who, if something doesn't work out, it's devastating, and they what they learn they take away is that they have less value, that they are broken, that there's something wrong. I was, I mean, I, I see this every day, and trying to reframe that for those folks is really critical because I think everyone is doing the best they can. Everybody has remarkable experiences, potential, the things that they do, so Ken, it's just, it's just wonderful to hear how you can take even something that potentially could be very destructive or overwhelming, and say, you know, you know there is something good in this. There is a nugget of something that I can learn from. Right. A, it's a great lesson.
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you, Listen, if you want a very specific takeaway to help with this for you or for your listeners, here's what I started doing when I would feel those like, oh my God, I can't fail. I can't fail because if I fail, if this doesn't work out, I'll never do anything again, so I should just better not do it. What I started to do was take, um, there's a website called IBDB, the Internet Broadway Database, Uh, And it lists everyone's credit, so you could put my name in it and all my shows I've produced but it all would be there. I started putting in the names of some of the producers that I had the most respect for in the industry. And I would go in there and I would look for their flops. Hmm. And often they were very early on in their career, right? And I would say, wow, look what happened to them after that didn't work. And you can do this in the business world. Look at the CEO of Twitter, look at the CEO of any major corporation. Right, You will see failures along the way to success. So it's a, that's a very specific thing that people can do to, to remember that, oh, right, you can fail, and you can fail publicly and lose $100 million and still come back and be okay with your next shot as long as you give it another shot
2: right and and these days this is one of i think the most important lesson to learn i was just listening to this on npr that that our youth need to know that it's okay to fail yes you must fail you know because you can learn from it failure is not something that that is a last straw it's not devastating yeah. we have to be able to tolerate this because the chances of us being successful all the time pretty slim
0: oh impossible look they put baseball players in the hall of fame if they get one hit out of three that's (laughs) That's right right. you can strike out miserably both those times right at those other times and still go to the hall of fame so yeah you gotta just swing the bat
1: and if you quit after the failure you never know if that next one
2: was gonna be the success right that's right so Ken Davenport how do people find you how do they get tickets to your show Tell us. We've got about a minute left.
0: Uh, the easiest thing to do is just go to my blog. It's com, or Google my name, Ken Davenport. It should come up first. Theproducersperspective.com, my Instagram, Ken Davenport, B-Way, uh, google me you'll find me but the blog is probably the best way i've got a podcast there that people can listen to with a lot of this kind of stuff theatrical stuff but also small business and just hearing from some really inspirational people
2: so check it out we will ken thanks so much for being on the show the dr joe show normally we go out with our theme song tonight let's go out with one of the songs from ken oh show. yeah thanks, thanks
1: ken,
3: ken. Thanks, ken. The prime of that rock star track I quickly left behind Cause dreams don't matter When the rent is coming due You play it safe And let the fantasy slip through But sometimes I close my eyes And I find myself back in